That was a crazy day, the insane reaction and fallout from, from that video. that just got tens of millions of hits. We still have people angry at us to this day. They'll send us like hate mail like, you fooled me. I've never gotten over it. I'll never forgive you. You're listening to The VFX Process, where we talk to the industry's most talented artists, including film, TV, and game. From concept artists to previous 3D animators and visual effects artists, we take a deep dive into a personal project of theirs and take a look at the work that went into them, as well as show an insight into the mind, workflow, and career of each artist. For any visuals discussed in this episode, we have provided a link to images and videos should you need a bit more context. The VFX Process, getting intimate with your industry. Brought to you by Big Two Studios. If you enjoy this show and haven't already, please leave us a rating and review. It really helps us out a lot. In today's episode, Jamie sits down with Sam Balcom to discuss the virtual production process that breathed life into his remarkable short films Even Vale and Metroid The Sky Calls. Sam is a writer, director and one of the co-founders of Rainfall Films, a VFX powerhouse based in Burbank, California. He reflects on the challenges of launching his own company back in the early 2000s and reveals the crucial adaptations they had to make to remain relevant in the ever-evolving industry. Even Vale, a fantasy short film that takes place in a vast world but was cleverly shot in a confined space, and Metroid The Sky Calls, a fan film inspired by an iconic 80s video game that racked up 3 million views on YouTube, both owe their existence to the magic of virtual production. So stick around, this is going to be a good one. Hey Sam. Hello Jamie, how are you? I'm very good, thank you. How's things? Things are good, you know, midweek. It's, uh, things could go either way, we'll see. <laughs> oh really? You see one of those? What, what, yeah. what, what are you want at the moment? What kind of, what kind of project? Well, uh, I'm working on Four things right now. We're doing some ads for the the Meg Two. Uh, oh the yes, big old big old shark movie. It's cool. They they sent over the 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 3D model of the shark from the film, so we could do some like uh, so like ads uh, graphics for the ads, so like the shark can come up and like right towards camera or, or chomp down on the main title or whatever. Just want to say I appreciate your time today, Sam. I know you well even more so now that you're a, a very BC Kai and you've got multiple projects on, so I just want to say thanks. Of course, well, thanks, thanks very much for uh, for having me on. Oh, pleasure, absolute pleasure. Today we will be covering kind of like two projects that we'd like to just chat about, uh, and one, one obviously being the. I'd love to talk about the Metroid project a little bit if we if we can, and then obviously uh, Even Fail would be. It's, it's the big one. We'd like to just start with an introduction. So just give us some background and, and how it all started for you in the industry. Hi, my name is Sam Balcom. I'm a director, writer, and a visual effects producer, a co-owner of Rainfall Films that was started between me and several other friends back in 2008. So it was actually our 15-year anniversary this year, and I uh, can't believe that we're still around. And uh, I've been interested in visual effects ever since I was a kid, watching Star Wars and, and getting the the, the art of Star Wars books and watching the behind the scenes stuff and seeing how they did everything. And I just, I knew that when I got into filmmaking, I knew that uh, I was going to be doing projects that were probably going to have a lot of visual effects in them, uh, or at least have them, that, that be a component of them. And I knew that I couldn't afford to pay anyone to do this for me. So I decided to just kind of dive in and try to try to learn myself. So mostly self-taught uh, in college, kind of dove into after effects and photoshop and uh, uh cinema 4d and any other programs i could get my hands on at the time legally or not so uh as, as a, we've, we've all done it yeah <laughs> very, <laughs> very uh, uh poor college kid 
but uh, yeah, as, as it went, I managed to get a job in, in visual effects after college eventually. And I uh, wasn't expecting that to actually be part of the, of my career, but it was a good way to go. And I uh, spent time, spent uh, several years at post houses doing that until I felt comfortable enough uh, or stupid enough to leave and start a company of my own. So here I am. What was the first kind of thing that you created that you look back on and think? Oh boy. Um, well, as a kid, my first thing was uh, taking black construction paper and poking holes in it and putting a light behind it so I could have outer space. That was my, my first foray into visual or special effects. But yeah, in college, um, I actually tr uh, tried to uh, shoot a feature independent fantasy film in college. And uh, I was a, a little bit um, ambitious. It was an amazing learning experience because we, a bunch of kids out in the wild with a Canon XL1 and uh, filming what we can and then coming back and I would try to figure out how to do sky replacements or you know, magic or this and that. And, uh, you know, it, it was... <laughs> It was never finished to a point where I wanted to like put it out there in the world because this was also kind of at the dawn of the internet around 2000, 2001. So yeah, that was kind of the first, my first kind of uh, foray into visual effects for myself. You'd done college, you got into the in industry working for houses and then you set up your own studio. Was there a specific reason for stepping into that space where you start something of your own? I always knew that I wanted to do that even Again, as a kid doing my home movies, I would, I would have like a little production company name and I'd make a little title card to put up. So I, I always knew that I wanted to have my own company. It was just kind of a matter of when and, and, and kind of strategizing that because, you know, I, leaving my job was a huge decision. I was leaving, you know, a salary. I was leaving health insurance and all this stuff. And I, we had no guarantee that we would get clients, that we would have ongoing business, uh, uh, any kind of success. We were lucky enough to, I think, hit things at the right time and have a combination of skill sets that made it work because we didn't want to just do post or production. We, we wanted to be uh, an all-in-one house where we could go take a project from development, pre-production to shoot, to post, and final delivery. You know, when things started off, we were doing our, our primary business, kind of our bread and butter was music videos. And uh, this was in, you know, the mid to late 2000s when there were still budgets for that kind of thing. That industry just completely fell out. Record labels were not giving artists money anymore for that kind of stuff unless you were like the top of the top. So we had to pivot. We had to figure out, okay, where can we go? What, what stuff can we do that isn't reliant on that? And I think having all, all of those different things that we, that we could do, like one of my other partners is, uh, is an editorial. Uh, my other partner is all audio, so mu uh, music, sound design, mixing, all that stuff. So we were able to kind of go where the business was. You know, who knows with uh, the writer's strike right now, we may have to do that again by the end of this year. Well, we, uh, it's, it's, it's important to be really flexible. And that's kind of also why I wanted to leave and start my own thing to be able to kind of say, okay, I want to do my own projects, but I also want to be able to experiment and try different technologies and different things and not have to worry about also, okay, well, I have a boss or I, you know, have these clients that we need to keep happy. Um, so hasn't all, hasn't been a smooth road the whole time, but you know, we're still here. We're still kicking and, uh, hopefully, hopefully we'll be for a little while longer. So music video wise, it's, we've got like Nelly, Amory, Stevie Wonder, Celine Dion in one of the Nelly music videos. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Uh, it's Nelly featuring Kelly Rowland. So there's a moment she's like messaging in messaging Nelly and she's actually using like a paging device 
and she's actually messaging on Excel spreadsheet, but it's like, <laughs> and she says she says something on it, like where are you at or something, uh, and and the text goes into the next cell. It would be hilarious if, due to budget cuts, that that's the reason why they just thought, oh, how can she message? Uh, <laughs> that's great i i yeah we've seen so many of things like that it's it's well it, it from what i've heard we haven't worked on a show like like csi or any like these like cop shows that often will have those kind of like computer interfaces that are needed um and which they which never look right they never look correct because i mean if you a real computer interface for th those kinds of things look, looks boring and you know but so, you know, they have to spice it up a bit. From what I've heard from people I know that work on those kind of shows, they they do a lot of that stuff on purpose and they, they do a lot of the the things that just make absolutely no sense or like this like stupid hacker lingo or whatever that. Yes. Kind of see what they can get away with in there, just knowing that people are going to laugh at it. What happened on day one of Brian Falls? Uh, the first thing we did was actually started uh, way before uh, the company launched. So, um, I This is back in 2007. IGN, I went to them and I pitched them an idea of a feature that they could do where they could take video games that haven't yet been made into movies and make a fake, make fake trailers for them. And so we chose uh, The Legend of Zelda and they gave us free reign to go and shoot something. And, and we did, we, we, we had an absolute blast making it. And, you know, by today's standards, you look at it and say, okay, that's obviously very fake and, and, and no, nowhere near as slick and professional as what, what uh, people are making for like fan films now. But at the time we were, we were very pleased with it. And IGN launched it on April 1st of 2008 and uh, saying it's a, it's a real trailer. I say, hey, there's a Zelda movie coming out. Here's the trailer. We launched Rainfall Films the same day uh, to, it was, it was, which was uh, <laughs> mostly a good idea because it, it definitely helped put us in uh, it, we, it got our names in the trades. It, it really got our name out there. That was a crazy day, day day one. Uh, it, it was we were watching the insane reaction and fallout from from that video. Just, they just got tens of millions of hits. Yeah, and uh, uh, it was wild. Like, just we still have people angry at us to this day who will who will send us you know email like hate mail like you fooled me you fooled me <laughs> in 2008 i've never i've never gotten over it i'll never forgive you well that leads on to the metroid um short how did that come about was that another fan film that you approached somebody to you know we can make this yeah uh for the metroid short we this was in 2014 i believe we we're developing a few things, some original ideas, some feature scripts, and uh, but we really, really w wanted to get another short made. Ended up putting a poll online on our site and on social media saying, hey, if we did another like fan film type project, what should we do? We, we kind of wanted to test the waters a little bit. I wasn't that keen on doing another f fan project, especially with having the, the company been established by that point, but they're really fun. You, you get to kind of flex some interesting creative muscle and, and, uh, play in a little sandbox that's not your own, but you know, you try to be respectful and not make a mess. We ended up doing a big, a big poll. We ended up narrowing down to a few different things. And then, uh, I think we had a week or two of, of, of voting and one of the Metroid fan sites got wind of it. And so they, so they would like send their, their forum users over to kind of brigade the, uh, the, the voting booths. <laughs> so that, that ended up winning, which is fine by me because I love those games. I love that world. And, and I hadn't done anything sci-fi in a while. So I thought this would be a really fun, a fun project, but it was very difficult because the, when, when 
it won, I was excited, but I was also really dreading it because I knew like our biggest hurdle was going to be this, the suit that Samus wears It's so iconic and, and it moves in such a specific way. They were like, how are we going to build this practically? Because it's, you know, you build this thing in real life and it's going to be cumbersome. It's going to be you know, like a tank. We hadn't done anything with motion capture before, but we started looking into it and we actually found some guys here in Burbank that have did this thing called mobile mocap uh, using, um, I think they're called uh, Moval suits where they came to us and it's literally just a computer and uh, a jumpsuit with uh, sensors built in and it worked incredibly well. Uh, I was really surprised, you know, some cleanup was needed later, but all, all mocap really needs cleanup work. We ended up shooting the film that way. Uh, and it, it was going to be, Pretty much all CG except for when we kind of go inside. Out of visor stuff. Yes. Yeah. That was something that was on a, a level bit higher than what we had done before, having just completely CG environments and interactions and fight scenes and spaceships and all this stuff. I, I kind of wanted to do it in a, in a bit of a retro style. But you can definitely see that comes across, absolutely. I, I was thinking about it for a while, and it wasn't really exciting me to approach it in a, in a more modern way, the, oh, the way that it probably would be made if someone did make a Metroid film. It would be slick and polished and lots of, you know, holographic displays and touchscreens and all, all this stuff. I thought back to, you know, because I'm a very old-school gamer. I, uh, you know, when I, was, when I was playing the first Metroid in the 80s, you know, that, that first game was inspired by, you know, Alien, and it had that kind of analog feel to it. So let's let's kind of bring that into the film. Uh, I ended up, you know, doing a bunch of research, rewatching like 2001 and, uh, you know, Forbidden Planet and a, a bunch of older sci-fi that had just like a real texture to the, the, the film grain and, and the, the lens choices, you know, we kind of recreated... Uh, you know, an anamorphic look and a lot of some, a little bit of frame judder and, and just, just made it imperfect. Even for all the, the, the monitors in Samus's ship, I did all the motion graphics heavily inspired by the monitors on board, uh, the, the ships in Alien and also the escape pod in 2001 and then ran them back through a VHS uh, player three or four times. So that they would, re when they're uh, being displayed, they would really have that analog feel. Brilliant. When we uh, put it out there, it did extremely well. And uh, I was very, very happy and honored to have uh, the response that it did. But there's definitely you know, some people who are like, oh, wow, that's that's way, it's a little too different, too detached from Metroid for me. And to me, that's fine because it's a fan film. And I think sure. if you're going to do, do a fan film, don't make it the way Hollywood would make it. Don't make it the way you'd make it if you had $250 million, you know, in your way, figure out some interesting angle on it, because that's what gets, that's what makes it stand out. And Definitely. the response we got from it, you know, that got, I mean, that, that short film got me representation. It got, it put the, our company on this new level. And I don't think that would have happened if we had just tried to make a standard okay yep that's what that's what metroid looks like how do you sort of approach like the story do you go through the forums or do you just go with what you would like as a fan and a writer director you know i mainly go with what i would like as a as a, as a fan <clears throat> and uh knowing full well i mean i know with with metroid i know that universe and i know the history of it and i know what what fans love about it i didn't want to go too far away from it where it would disrespect the property and I've, I've seen some fan films that go extremely far with something 
to the point where the owners of the IP would consider it damaging. We didn't talk about it at all after that that contest. We said, okay, Metroid One, we're going to make one. We're going to shut up now, and we're not. You're not going to hear from us until it's done. We're not going to do blogs. We're not going to, you know, have little making of videos along the way because that's just going to attract attention to it. And we we want to just be able to get it out there and not not uh, piss off Nintendo too much. Were they fine with it when it when it did come out? Did you get any sort of? Uh, we didn't get any takedown notices, so that's, that's good. That's, that's as a much, good start. That's as fine as as it's going to get, uh, which I'm okay with. I guess talking about the the actual process of these shorts, so particularly Metroid and even Val when we get onto that one, where does it all start for you? What's your typical process? Storyboards, animatics, what's it like from start to finish? Definitely starts with with the story, uh, with the with an idea. There has to be some kind of hook that makes it interesting. Like, why would I want to watch this? We did have a whole script. We did have a whole story that we ended up thrown in the trash because uh again i i looked at it and i was like yep that's a, that's a metroid short film but there wasn't anything surprising about it to me it was really just kind of taking all the, the beats all the elements of the games uh you know the most popular stuff and kind of putting it into this this thing and uh and i just didn't find that very interesting so i threw that away and then came back to it and once i had this idea that of, of kind of going retro with it that led to some more story story ideas that could make it a little bit more unique and hopefully be be more fun to make. So yeah, it all starts with story and character, and uh, 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 and and surprise. Wanting you know, you never want people to 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 expect what's you know around the next corner. So hopefully, you know, well, so that's what what I try to do with it with everything um, story wise. But I think that also plays in with with post-production and visual effects too you know how involved are you in the pre-production after writing do you give a hand at storyboarding do you sort of previous things what's that like for you i do i do storyboarding it depends on on the complexity of the project sometimes i'll do just hand-drawn storyboards uh sometimes i'll go in and do animatics pre-production is is incredibly important you can never have enough enough time in uh, pre-production Actually, only been lately where we have tried to go even further and uh, doubt a lot of environments. If we're going to be doing something that has a lot of CG environments, we try to nail that look and try to to polish that up before filming as much as possible, as opposed to doing it afterwards, which often happens. You get that that stuff done early, then you know you know how to light your scene, you know how what how to move the camera, the actors, and all that. That's a big thing to talk about there: green screen, matching the light in between your pre-built worlds, especially in Evenval, preparing those worlds before you shoot the actors. Can you just give a brief background on how that started for, for you guys? Evenval is a fantasy short that uh, I had been thinking about for a long time that I really wanted to do. It's actually based in the same world and off some of the same characters from that college fantasy feature that I mentioned earlier. I always kind of liked that story and it stuck around with me. And I wanted to kind of revisit that world and those characters at, one, at some point. And um, it was in 2020 when uh, the pandemic got really bad. Uh, we were in lockdown. Uh, my wife and I just had our our daughter, and so we were all we were we were bunkered in. And I, I just wanted something that I could kind of work on, uh, something creative that I could work on just for myself. And I started writing. I ended up rewriting uh, a feature script for Evenvale, and uh, I thought, man, it'd be, it'd be really fun to just do a, a short version of this or you would just uh, like take a, a scene from the the feature and do that we knew how vfx intensive it was going to be and it was going to take some time to complete 
it seemed really worth it. I talked to my costume designer. She got really excited for that one. My biggest thing was, uh, this one prop. It's this, this huge double bladed ax that plays a prominent part in the story. I started looking around online, uh, looking around on Instagram at different, uh, like a metalsmiths, uh, doing swords and axes and all these different kinds of weapons. And I found this one guy, his work was just exquisite, absolutely beautiful. His name's David Delagardel. I contacted him, said, your work, your, your, your work really speaks to me as someone who loves, you know, medieval armor and fantasy stuff and any chance you could make this for us. He said, you know, honestly, I'm, I'm, I'm super busy right now. I don't think I can, but you know, I'll, I'll let you know if, if my time opens up. A number of years prior, he had forged the the sword in, I think it was the first Thor movie the, that um, Idris Elba's character carries. Oh, uh, okay, yes. Yeah. So he's, he's definitely in demand. And uh, so I said, okay, no problem. I totally understand. And like an hour later, he, he emails me back. He said, are you the Sam Balcom who did this thing back in like the early 2000s? He, he was talking about the fantasy short I did, in, the fantasy feature I did in college that, you know, even though it wasn't released, we still had like the website and, and, and all that stuff. But he was a, a fan from back in the day, just by complete coincidence. And so, okay, well, I totally got to work on this now. So, okay, well, we're, we're definitely filming this now. So that's kind of how it started. What was it like on Even Veil from pre-production to the end, really? And we'll go into it in a bit more detail. Once once I had the script to a place that I liked, the, you know, the, the two big things were creating the environments and casting. So a couple of the actors actually reprised their roles from the earlier project older like me but uh so i kind of just wrote older versions of their of their characters but yeah we we put out a casting notice and uh we got some amazing people who uh who we brought on board and for deciding the environments uh, that it was around the time that i first started working with redshift uh as a renderer and quixel megascans i'd you know ob- obviously been incredibly impressed with uh, the stuff that i had seen made with it so the next step after that was after, after we had created some test environments is to, um, put it on the green screen and see how well we could, uh, match it. I really wanted to step up my game with green screen compositing, which I, you know, have been doing for a long time, but you know, uh, a lot of that has been, especially on client jobs, you know, we get the green screen footage from the client and you know, we haven't even made the environment yet. So we have to make the environment match the lighting that they shot with, but you know, uh, DPs have such a hard job on a green screen anyway, when they, if they don't know, you know, where's, what's the sky doing? Where are the light sources coming from? What's, what's bounce? How close is that wall? That's going to bounce that onto them. If they don't know that, then you know, there's only so much you can do. So we said, okay, well, we're, we're in lockdown. We, we have all the time in the world right now. So uh, we're just going to just keep kind of building these environments and knowing exactly where people are going to be standing. And my partner, Jesse stood out there. We just kind of had him stand in, uh, uh, in front of the green screen. And we ran a live HDMI feed from that to, uh, from the camera to the computer where we could do a live key, have the environments up and be able to, you know, in semi real time, move lighting around both virtually and physically. Obviously that's a technique that's been done for a long time there, but it was the first time that we really tried to zero in on, on that, that realism of lighting and not making everything super perfect. Uh, my goal going into it kind of similar with, with the Metroid thing is that I, I, I wanted things to be a little, a little rough, a little, a little imperfect. So the, you know, if we have this environment, you know, you know, we tried to look, look at all these virtual envi- environments as if they were real. It's like, if we were really here, how would we light this set? 
where could we put lights? Would it be impossible to light from this direction? And uh, thought of it that way and, and use a lot less light. So we said, okay, here's, here's our major key source. That's going to bounce around and do all this. Uh, you know, we, we didn't often do like nice beauty hair lights on, on people because that just, it, it made it look too good. It made it look too, it looked too green screen, really. We tend to go for more stylish lighting. So my, the challenge on even veil was to pull that back and, and go for a bit more like, okay, what if we're, what if we were really there and all we had were a couple of bounce boards there, what would that lighting look like? And what would that look like in the environment? So that's, that's kind of how we approached the, the, de the development of that. I know the first time I glanced before I got into any of the behind the scenes and really did research on how it was made quality of that. And it's probably just obviously down to your guys' talent and your experience with green screen and just VFX in general and the stuff that you've done prior to it. Yeah. The quality is, is really, uh, you might play it down, but we feel that it's top, top quality stuff. Thank you very much. And what about previs for that? Do you do any previs? Is it boards? Because I know that you're, you know, planning ahead so much with environments and, and, and actors. Is there more an element planning wise? There was more. There, there was definitely, since we had the environments uh, ahead of time, uh, there was definitely more that we could do in previs and do some animated camera moves. Uh, that's also great for the actors to see. They can, uh, and, and we had... Uh, for a lot of the camera setups, when we were filming, we had a live that live playback and live keying going, so they could even like see themselves in the environment. But yeah, that the, the, a lot more previs in, in that dimension. As as far as the 3D program, we were all using Cinema 4D. Everything built in there. Uh, we just had a lot of preset camera moves, like we're using their the C4D take system, uh, able to quickly switch uh, both in in development and on set, quickly switch between the different takes. So okay, cameras needs needs to do this, and then we would, you know, just kind of match that on the on the dolly or the jib or whatever we were doing uh, to uh, match as closely as possible. But at the same time, leave room for improvisation because I also don't want to be completely locked in on something where we can't find something new on the set. So, oh, you know, this angle is way better, or this, you know, if we, if we move around here, that's going to be so much better. The other thing, uh, which I, I've seen so much on on working on other productions, where you just get so completely locked into your concept that there's no no room for fun, no room for kind of playing around, and that's something that I want the the crew and the cast to feel that they can try different things. What was that stage like creating those concepts, and did they change throughout? I I pretty much was open to everything changing at any point. The the I think a good example of that was. There's a scene earlier on where she, the, our character walks into the city and she's surrounded by these guards holding swords. Originally in the, in the previs, the camera stayed very tight on the whole scene. I was like, okay, this should feel very claustrophobic. Like she's getting hemmed in by these uh, guards, but watching it, it, it was at the sacrifice of the scale of the scene. And also, uh, it was, it was sacrificing geography. It was kind of hard to tell where everyone was. So, uh, looked at that and said, okay, let's throw in this, this, this very wide shot after all the swords come up and we, we can see her surrounded by everybody, see where she is in the city, see the, the red glowing tower that she needs to get to. So thankfully we had the footage, uh, we had a plate of her that worked at that angle, but we didn't have a plate of the guards from that, from those specific angles. So. I just, you know, threw the costume on Jesse. We went in front of the green screen here, just shot him doing the thing from all the different things, brought it back in, comped him in, and uh, it ended up uh, working out really well. Pre-production, previs, filming, and post all kind of mashed together. 
Yeah, I was going to say it sounds like it was. It's kind of circulating. You know, shoot something, need something else, go and shoot it, bring it back in. And I love that. It's great. It, it makes it feel. It's almost like you're working in like an animated film in that sense, where you can just you, okay, let's just go back and try something new. Let's do it and create a fabricate an entirely new shot uh, or moment or an action beat or something. And uh, I, I I love that that freedom. You don't want to go overboard with with that kind of freedom, but it's it's great to watch something or or show it to to some, you know, test to a test audience and, and people say, okay, this scene isn't clear. This isn't working. And so we can kind of come back and try some all new shots, uh, with what we got. Uh, so that was a really fun process and it's fun for us too, especially like if, if like all, all of us are in the film as something, uh, I think there's, there's a shot later on of a burning tower and there's some people running away from it. And that's just me. I threw on a bunch of different costumes <laughs> and ran away. Uh, I mean, I was, shocked because it's a, it seems a very limiting space but the scale and the quality of the final thing is something that you would imagine that we is shot on a much bigger uh, scale in terms of space i mean it, i don't know if it was just me but things like the new thor movie love and thunder there was something about those shots with you know the, on the green screen things felt not tangible and like unrealistic and didn't feel great and visually looked quite bad at times and when you look at what you guys have done here in such a small space it's it's incredible what was it like working in that space that that was something that we were very very much aware of and that was a huge goal uh going into this was like how, how do we create that sense of scale with the, the small space that we have and we could have gone like we countless times we've gone and rented a huge green screen or blue screen stage um, and, and it's great. It's really fun to have that much space and that much freedom, <clears throat> but you know, we were trying to keep the cost down because we knew that we we're like, where should, where should the money go on this thing? You know, we were paying our cast, paying our crew. Uh, we've got hair and makeup, we've got costumes and the props, like the axe and all this stuff. That's where the money should go. Um, and so, you know, we don't, if we can pull a few grand out that would have spent, uh, going, you know, going to a big stage, let's do that. It comes down to me to the planning of the storyboards. I sketch the boards with you know limitless potential. It's like okay, let's what's what's the craziest epic shot that I can think of? What's what kind of framing? What kind of camera move? And not worry about how. I don't. I'm not gonna worry about how to do it. And it's like okay, yes, that'll work. That'll look cool. Okay, now how do we do that in the space that we have? Our poor actors were always we're spinning them around so much because we only had. I mean, it was maybe 90 degrees worth, I think, of green screen, maybe less than that. So, you know, anytime we needed to get, okay, we're going to, we're going to dolly up on you from this side, looking at this, and then you're going to turn around. We're going to get the reverse, but we can't get the reverse because there's no green back there. Yeah, so, so we need to turn you around. Your eye line is now over here, <laughs> but you know, they go there. They did amazingly, even though like all the, the, the three young actors in it who we worked with for the first time, this is their first time working on a green screen. I was a little, a little nervous going into it because of that. Uh, cause you never really know how someone's going to respond to it. But I mean, they were all brilliant. They did such a great job. I never had to really explain to them, uh, you know, I didn't have to over explain what was happening or where this was. They just got it. Speak to that. But I know that I, from what I heard, I think they shot a lot of it on, on the volume and, uh, the, I know like there's, there's productions that that use the volume incredibly well, whereas you would never, ever know, um, uh, you know, like, um, uh, was a Spielberg's, uh, 
uh, latest, um, the Fablemans, uh, did the, that that car scene, um, and people found out about it later, like, wait, that was on the volume? That's crazy. When it's done well, it's seamless. It's like any other tool. It's just really how you use it. And uh, I know I've, I haven't shot on the volume. I was just over on one the other day. Uh, actually, the, the guys who did our mocap on Metroid opened up a volume stage not too far from here, so I went to check it out. Um, and it'd be, it, I definitely want to try it. It would be fun to do. But yeah, I would want to keep in mind where it's not just something you just kind of go in and okay, well let's let's try these angles and this and this because there's still only like you're you're still pretty limited to the camera moves that you can do on that definitely, uh, and you can't do these big things where you'll come up, sweep down, and look up to the sky. Or, I was going to uh, say about the the, the 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 scale of the the volume if you're working on like a small projector or you've got an LED wall or you're shooting into a corner still you're limited even though you can change the world and you know scale it up you're still limited to where the camera can go because as soon as you go off the the volume or off the uh, screen it's not like a green screen where you can kind of roto out and you can expand the world and track it unless I'm wrong there um yeah I mean you 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 can uh and like you can do track is also the cameras, the, the cameras that you're filming on have uh, motion trackers on them where, and then LIDAR and all that. So it, the, you're still tracking in the computer, you're still tracking what the camera is doing. So you can bring that data in to post and extend that shot past the screens if you want to. But it is, I think it, it is very easy to just, to, where you get a little bit limited Although you have some blinders on to, to, okay, I, I'm going to keep things within this. The other thing too, to keep in mind is that there's still a ton of post work that has to be done on those shots. Yes, definitely. A lot more than a lot of people realize. Sometimes the back the, the backgrounds are replaced entirely in post anyway. Um, there's a, there's a technique that some of them do where they actually shoot every other frame. They shoot at a higher frame, like 48 and every other frame, uh, is actually capturing a green screen or the, the, the wall is flashing green. Ah, oh, okay. Between every other frame. So that way you have the option, okay, well, we have the the pass the, with the, the volume behind it, and then you also have a pass with green behind it. That's interesting. But yeah, there's a lot of cleanup that needs to happen. If the, if the screen, if the camera's a little bit too close and the screen is completely in focus, sometimes you see the LEDs, sometimes you see that little pattern. Uh, so you have to, to fix that. Um, so yeah, um, again, it's just like, any other tool you got to learn its limitations and its, and yeah, its strengths. Definitely. And, um, I think we'll get, we're, we're in, we're still kind of in the honeymoon phase right now of the technology, but we'll, it'll get better and, uh, the, the filmmakers will get more used to it. Yeah. And I guess it will go from, you know, virtual production and this to just the word production. That's just the way, the new way of doing things. Which I think it's also really important for directors to, to be extremely educated in, in these tools, um, like you, there's a story that came out earlier, either earlier this year or last year about, uh, how the, it's, there's been some problems on some bigger shoots where the director doesn't really understand the, the VFX pipeline, uh, they really quite understand how it all works. So they're, uh, maybe asking for things that are a little bit too difficult or, or, or the, that are going to add a lot of time in post, like, oh, this is good. This is good. These decisions are going to make things way more complicated and cost a lot more money. You know, it's not the director's job to know the, all the nuts and bolts and how all this stuff works. I think having experience in that, I think helps everybody the same way. Uh, like when I was, uh, I came, I was in Boston and I came back here 
uh, and got my degree at Art Center College of Design in Pasadena. Um, I, I love the film program there because it was super hands-on. And one of the the uh, uh, I guess it was the unspoken rule of the of the film program was that if you're on set and you know someone uh, one of your crew drops dead, you should be able to walk over there and do their job. <laughs> essentially meaning that you know you you should kind of know how to do all this stuff as much as you can because one it if you get out of school and you can't get work directing or doing that thing that you want you've got all these backup skills uh but also you know and also you may find that, that you love doing one of those jobs more than this other thing also it helps you speak to those people better like you if you understand a gaffer's job or a, a, a boom operator or a dolly grip, if you don't really understand what they're doing, you can talk to them a lot better and, and production will go faster. And I think that's the same way with visual effects. What about um, a challenge on Even Vile? What was the biggest challenge on that project? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, the, the the boring answer is really just the time, finding the time to do all of it because it, it did end up becoming a lot more complex than I than I thought it would. Once I was getting into the, that post pipeline of seeing, you know, how long these shots were going to take it was definitely a little, a little disheartening as i think from the time we shot it to the time we completed it i think was about a year and a half something like that and of course we had been working on it we had been working on it for months before uh, we shot and yeah i think part of it was like we i remember running into some issues with color space because we shot on a black magic ursa uh, which i really like they're, they're awesome cameras uh we were mo- I, i've mostly been used to working with with reds before that uh, but we had bought an Ursa and, and tried it for some things, and, and I really wanted to use it on this. And it was great for the most part, uh, but we ran into an issue in the in the pipeline with converting color space correctly. Uh, we were, we were uh, pulling the, the green screen keys, and they were just looking ugly as hell. And it was like off of, you know, off of the, the Blackmagic Raw codec. Like, there's no reason it should look this bad. Had to do a lot of research and ended up talking to some people online and, and uh, some people at Blackmagic and we finally found the kind of the issue was that it, it needed to be converted to this uh, kind of specific color space and it needed to work in, 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 a, in a, a linear setting. And uh, kind of once once we dialed that in, then that we were able to pull the keys a lot better and a lot faster. But that was several months of, of, kind of R&D trying to get shots done and working around this thing. And then once we figured it out, had to go back and rekey those shots. Oh, okay. I was going to say, how did that affect the, um, you know, did you just continue as it was or did you have to redo things at the guest? Because you're trying to get the shots done, but you've got this wall where it's, something's not right, but we can't fully stop doing things. Mm-hmm. So you have to just move forward and overcome it. Yeah, I didn't really want to completely bring it to a halt. Um, and then, uh, yeah, other little things were just kind of like, again, kind of having to deal with time figuring out how, to, how we can get renders done quickly because a lot of the environments were so uh, kind of overly detailed that uh, rendering would take a long time. The the There's this kind of cathedral uh, uh, area with all these hanging glass lanterns and uh, found out that the the lanterns, you know, because they're all using, it's, it's, all, it's all kind of a frosted glass that um, had a lot of kind of, light dispersion and bounce and all this stuff because there were hundreds of these things just rendering a single frame of this room was you know taking hours and uh so it's like oh my god how are we going to do this because we have so many shots in this location 
um, that uh, ended up, you know, just kind of cheating. We did a work on where we, we would render the scene without them in it and then do a second pass with them. If, if they needed to be moving or refracting light in a certain way, we would render it in 3D. But a lot of those shots, they're literally like 2D sprites. That oh, okay. We and then in, in After Effects, added a little bit of a like like a puppeteered swing motion because uh, they're in the background or out of focus, you can't tell. Uh, but you know, little little tricks like that that you try to do along the way that uh, speed up the process. That uh, we can still be here rendering it. If I didn't. <laughs> um, was there any crazy late night, you know, sixteen-hour days? What was it like? Crunch time. There wasn't as much of a crunch time on this as there have been, has been on previous projects. Like on Metroid, I remember there being a, a much bigger push at the end to get it all done. As a director, so on, on projects like this, what's it like for you? to get that work-life balance? Is it easy to switch off? It's gotten a lot easier over time. Uh, when when we started Rainfall, we were all working just out of our respective homes. And uh, you know there was no separation between work life and home life. It was just all, I mean, we were at the time, most of us, I think, just you know single and, and childless. So you, there wasn't a whole lot to kind of impinge on, on, on our work time. And, uh, so, and, you know, as I was, I was, uh, I was in my twenties when, when Rainfall started. So like, I, I was devil may care, like, hell yeah, I'll pull, I'll, throw, I'll pull an all nighter. That's <laughs> yeah. fine. Let's do it. Uh, but yeah, as I got, as I got older and as, as the company went on, it, it uh, it started to, um, to be a, a much more of a, of a burden, especially when we are working on some higher, um, you know, more kind of higher stress projects for, uh, for clients and things where you, you, you kind of, you don't want to bring that home with you. You don't want to have that around the, you know, the dinner table. And I found myself getting a little bit too stressed out at times. And, uh, that was around the time where we said, okay, you know what guys, I think we really need, uh, to get like a physical office space one just for, I think that's just the next step in our business. We need to have this so we can have, we can have, you know, other people, other employees or freelancers work in a place. Um, and also just to have that be somewhere else, somewhere other than separate it house. And, and once we did that, once we, once we went to an office, I found my stress level went way down. I, I felt so much better being able to leave that behind and come home and have a nice dinner and, and watch a movie and, and just kind of chill out. Uh, but yeah, and, and I'm still thankful for that. We're, we're on our, we're in our third office location here. Uh, we're in Burbank and, uh, it's, it's, I, I love this place. Um, uh, and I, I love uh, being able to kind of make it our own. We have in our main room right now, we have, we have some mannequins that all have, uh, are wearing costumes from Evenvale right now. So it's kind of cool to, to walk in the morning and see that. Have you got the sort have you got the double head? I do have the axe. Yeah. I have the axe here in our, in our, uh, in our storage room. I want to find a, a really cool wall mount for it. Definitely. What kind of things do you do to unwind just out of interest? Is it, you know, family, what kind of hobbies? Yeah. Uh, family stuff, I think, uh, amazing. Uh, you know, we, my, my daughter just turned three years old. So, um, you know, weekends is just kind of about finding fun things to do together. Um, go hiking, uh, go to fun places and, and, uh, uh kind of do things that spark her imagination. Cause she's a creative kid. Yeah. Otherwise unwinding, uh, my wife and I, we, we love watching movies and shows. Uh, we love video games. Uh, we actually, when we first met, uh, we were playing, uh, we were heavily playing World of Warcraft, so we would play that together all the time. Between all those things, uh, yeah, there's there's no no other hours left in the day. Yeah. What, what's it like watching uh, video game cinematics as a director and writer? Do you tear them apart, or do you just try and switch off that part of your brain? I mean, I'm, I'm super into 
how video games are made and development. And I have a lot of friends in, in that area. Um, I, I just kind of like seeing what, what different games do, um, especially with, with cinematics. Um, I think within our first year, sometime after the, the, that Zelda trailer came out, we were contacted by uh, BioWare because they were in development on the first Dragon Age game. And they were actually uh, looking at the option of doing the cinematics as live action. Uh, and so they, they saw the Zelda trailer, they really liked it and said, Hey, do, do you want to maybe try to shoot some test footage? And so we actually worked with them for a little bit doing some tests and it was, it was cool and all that, but I think we all agreed that, that it would just be t- too weird jumping to a live action cutscene and then back to the game, you know, the game engine and all that. It would, it would feel kind of dated in the way that, you know, it's like a oh, you know, like older, like full motion video CD-ROM games or something, you know? So that would have been interesting. I mean, we're, and we've gotten to the point now, of course, where uh, game engine graphics are just so damn good. You, there's no need to do anything, you know, live action for them. Uh, but yeah, I'm a big fan of, uh, like the, the recent couple of recent God of War games, uh, because they, I uh, love that idea of keeping, essentially keeping one continuous camera movement. Incredible. Uh, so you're not cutting away from the action. You're not cutting away from the controls too much. Uh, and still getting a cinematic story. Have you seen the uh, Rising Kratos documentary? I'm... I have, yes. Yeah, my, 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 my friend Bear did the music for those games. Oh, really? Amazing. It's just the incredible the amount of work that went into them, and I'm so, I'm so happy to see them turn out well and also be so well-received. Yeah, big time, big time. Okay, so I think I think we've pretty much covered everything. If we can end on a, one great piece of advice that you've ever been given or you can give out to anybody uh getting into writing directing i always i always try to keep like the 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 true north of of having fun it's you know it's always cliche and and overdone but yeah if you're not having fun find something else to do is is as stressful and heartbreaking and 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 difficult as this job is i still have fun doing it recently one of my favorite bits of advice that i've heard is your your creativity is not endless it's it requires fuel and you can run out of that fuel and it leads to doing not good work or just feeling burnt out or feeling like you just don't, don't, you can't progress or don't know how to progress. And I was kind of feeling that way about a year or so ago where I had these projects that were really fun. I wanted to do them, but I, once I got to the computer or I got, it was got to the planning stage of the, even the, the piece of paper, I just had no motivation to keep going. I realized that my, my, my fuel tanks were, were empty uh, uh, for, to, to be able to refuel my creativity. And, um, you know, for me, it's like the, the answer to that is just to watch more movies, play more games, read more books, get inspired by what other people are doing. To me, that refuels the tanks. And I feel that that, that lets me get back and want to do my own thing. That's a great piece of advice. Sam, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you today. So thank you. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me on. This is great. It's always fun to chat about the process and all that. And I, I appreciate all the kind words. Brilliant, man. We love it. Thanks, Sam. And we'll speak to you soon, man. We'll catch up. Sounds great. Okay, brilliant, Sam. Take care, man. Adios. Thanks for listening. Remember to check out our other episodes available or check out the podcast in video form on our YouTube. Again, please drop us a rating and review. See you next time. The VFX Process, getting intimate with your industry. Brought to you by Big Two Studios.